Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what a gaffer and a grip does, and how about what a gaffer and a grip are, here's a hint. It has to do with electricity. Then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a recent college grad who does full-time freelance in the film, commercial, and television industries. But before I introduce you to Ronen Schechter, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that showcases firsthand career advice and insights into jobs from the professionals like Ronen who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org in the sign up box is right there. Now, my lighting obsessed latte lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Ronen Schechter, a full-time freelancer and entrepreneur in the film, commercial, and TV industry where he works as a non-union grip and gaffer. Over the years, Ronen has interned at a film festival and worked on television shows, television commercials, as well as on music videos and movies. Most recently, he was the studio manager at Ambient Plus Studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Ronen, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I actually just finished maybe my second cup of coffee for the day. So I, I'm, I'm going to stick with water for the remainder of the session. But yes, I am caffeinated and ready. Awesome. Well, I have my water bottle, but unfortunately, I think there's only a little bit left. <laughs> anyway, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. You know, I don't expect most guests in the afternoon to be chugging cold brew or drinking any hot coffee. So it's all good. So before we dig into the various projects that you have had over the years, Ronan, I was thinking we could help our listeners understand a little bit more about what you do most of the time. So first of all, what is a gaffer and what is a grip and are these roles related to one another? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So it's important to know the hierarchies on a film set that are below the line. So you'd start off with your, your director of photography or your cinematographer. Those are interchangeable titles. And they have a vision for the story. And that vision is communicated through color, lighting, art design. So in regards to lighting, that is the responsibility of the electrical department. 
And the department head of the electrical department on a film set is what is called a gaffer or a chief lighting technician. A chief lighting technician gaffer will have their second in command, which is typically called a best boy electric, best boy for short, who is responsible for the logistics, hiring, firing, making sure that work orders and rental orders with the rental houses are intact in and ready to be picked up by a teamster or whomever, you know, at a certain time on a certain day for a prep day or a shoot day. And then you have your grip department, which is led by what's called a key grip. What's what takes the electrical department and the grip department and separates them is electricity is the big one, I think. So a gaffer will pick the lamps that will be placed behind a window to be to flood into a room, for instance. And they want a certain quality of light that's between hard light and between soft light. There's million, there, there are numerous amounts of fabrics and rags that we use in the industry to create certain effects on light, whether it be by quality or shape or color or what kind of shadows you want to produce in the negative side of the frame. So what the grip department will do, are they're responsible for altering that shape without plugging anything in. They are the ones in the US specifically who will set up six by six frames of diffusion or eight by eight all the way up. It can go as small or as large as you want. Two by two, four by four, six by six, eight by eight, 12 by 12, 12 by 20, 20 by 20. It, it can go on. I mean, when you have the right people to do the job, it really is just a matter of making sure you have the equipment and time to do it. Because it's all kind of like Lego building at the end of the day. So the main differences are the electric department provides the electricity in the lamps and the lighting while the grip department shapes said light. Okay. Oh my gosh. And you said something, Ronan, at the outset about below the line Mm -hmm. on the set. I've never heard that phrase used before. What does it mean? So I might mess this up, but there's above the line and below the line. And that is related to what's called... So there's a title on set called the line producer. And they're responsible for budgeting an entire shoot, shoot day, movie, TV show, commercial, what have you. The folks who are above the line are typically your executive producers, your producers, your associate producers, your directors, your assistant directors, and arguably in today's world, cinematographers and production designers. But those two latter positions are still, I think, on like an a- have an asterisk next to them. Whereas below the line are all the people that... It's, the line is the budget, more or less. The folks who are making more money, who you might not actually see physically the day of on set, versus the below the line workers, your technicians, your department heads, your laborers, your second, second unit technicians. And so... Director of photography, production designer, gaffer, key grip, these department heads are still considered, they're below the line still. Not for better or worse. I think that's just a title that's come about the last hundred years or so that I was taught maybe uh, a couple days in and then never had any aspirations to move above the line to do any directing and writing or producing. So, I think I, I'm I'm fairly comfortable where I am below the line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that explanation. And before we actually dig in a little bit more on what you've done in those various roles, because you graduated so recently, you graduated in 2021, I thought maybe we could start there. Mm-hmm. You went yeah. to Georgia State University and you majored in 
film, cinema, and video studies. Is that right? Yeah, for more or less. I think on paper, it's Bachelor of Arts in Film and Media. And then I, I took a minor at the time in Entertainment Media Management, which was a fancy way of saying marketing. Got it. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated, Ronan? When I graduated college, I was already working, call it full time. I think it's important to put into perspective that it was 2021 and COVID still is, but at the time was having a more drastic effect on the industry and the lack of the lack of jobs available and the results of which, I mean, I almost think that COVID was one of the best things to happen to me, aside from having to go get pulled out of my study abroad program halfway through, because it gave me a second to complete the online work that more or less wasn't going to get me a job or not get me a job. And then at the time I had acquired a little bit of inventory and met the right people and worked the right jobs, which then dominoed into meeting more people. And I was able to find more set work come spring 2021. I was at that time, latter beginning of the start of, I would call like my career, for instance. When you say you were able to gather inventory, is that another Mm -hmm. way of saying you were able to kind of have some examples of work to put in a portfolio? No, sorry. When I say gather inventory, I should just say that I bought equipment. I bought lights. I bought grip equipment and started having a little bit of a kit that I traveled with when I was hired to bring it. So that would, on a technical basis, I would be hired for labor. And then, hey, can you bring X, Y, and Z? Cool. Yes, I can. Here's an estimate. Here's an invoice. And here's how you can pay the invoice more or less. So I would be able to have more or less two streams of income at the same time, which does not happen all the time. So it's one of those things that you just got to make sure you're not biting off more than you can chew when you purchase things, especially on credit. And just knowing when purchase is the right thing to do versus say, because you can always, you can buy a $200, $250 C-stand from company in California and then it's going to be 300 350 after it's shipped to you. Or you could go to your local rental house in Atlanta, Georgia and rent one for $5 a day. There is a bit of convenience to owning things. You don't have to make that drive during rush hour to the other side of the city to get one thing. But also knowing that you can pick something up for $5 a day with just an email to the rental house. And it's a pretty, it's a simple thing to pick up. So yeah, I, over the last, uh, I'd say uh, the, the first piece of equipment I ever bought was the end of 2020. And since then, I've now acquired what is known as a, a one-ton grip and electric package for you know my film and set work that travels in a vehicle I bought for my business this past March, 2022. And so I saw my, I saw my expenses, of course, were something that I was not accustomed to simultaneously income was different than I was accustomed to on, on a positive note. So where I was able to be hired for commercials with different companies for multiple days, and I can get into the differences of what it's like to work commercial versus a music video versus a movie or TV show. Yeah. Let's, let's get into that in a sure in yeah. a little bit, because first I just want to back up mm-hmm. to graduation. Sure. Let me, yeah. So what was your first job after you graduated and how did you get it? Well, 
my first job after graduation or my first job on set ever, because that was before I graduated. Uh, but unless one is more interesting than the other. Well, um, why don't we start with after graduation? Okay. Because okay. I know that you did have, whether it be internships mm-hmm. or short-term gigs during college. Sure. It's funny that this is one of the things I'm looking up. I, I keep, since 2020, I've kept a, a working Google Sheets of unpaid and paid work slash rentals where I have the shoot date, the production company and or payroll service listed, uh, my daily rate, my total rate, and then whether I've been paid, you know, and then it's in one column that's not been paid. It's another column that has been paid. So my first job, if I go back to this spreadsheet, my first job that would have been after graduation, it would have been, I mean, there's, there's a few at that time. So let me find a good one. A couple short films and some corporate work. I mean, it's it's not like too interesting, I suppose. It's just, I did get, it was work. You know what? I got, okay, I got a good one. I gaffed a short film called Arinko in Adagio. That was, I was very lucky to be a part of that crew. It almost, I almost got it from happenstance or, and someone else's unavailability. But this was a project that had already been granted. It had already received a grant and a sizable one that was part of a different collection of grants. So the funding was taken care of and the distribution was taken care of, which is for most projects that I short, especially films, short films exact to to be specific that I work on. It's it's a little more indie grassroots and Indiegogo funding or different types of funding that are a little more off the beaten path per se. And this film was going to be in Tribeca Film Festival. And it was one of my early gaffing roles that I got because someone else was just unavailable and they knew me, had a good rapport with me and was comfortable enough to reach out and ask me to crew it and be responsible for the lighting on this film that was going to be in Tribeca. And I was like, wow, that is such a... I mean, that's such a blessing in a way. And I felt just so blessed to be been able to have been a part of that opportunity. And what made that job even more special was that it was surrounded by at least half a dozen plus folks who I'd already worked with before are within a three to five plus year difference above me. So we're all pretty, we're getting along and we're having a good time and we're making something pretty cool simultaneously. Wow. Yeah. So it was pretty special. And how long was that gig? That was only four days. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was about a 12 page script. Yeah. And so we shot over four days. I mean, a lot of the budget was organized you know, per department. And then this was also a little more during COVID. So we were COVID testing multiple times throughout the prep and shoot week. But yeah, it was a great opportunity. I wouldn't call that job specifically like my, not the, that it's not a, it was it was a great opportunity, but I've had bigger jobs then that I consider to mean more for me now. But I think it's also very important that at the time, that's what was the top in a way for me. So it's all relative of experience and just what you want to do. Yeah. Are you freelancing right now, Ronan, because you want to? Or is that what's expected if Mm. you become a grip or a gaffer that this is the life? Yeah. So... I do love freelance. That definitely comes with its caveats. As we're on this phone call right now, I'm technically an unemployed person, but that doesn't scare me anymore. 
I love being a freelance self-employed gig worker because I create my own schedule. I create my own opportunities, my own challenges in a way. I, I'm able to learn at my own pace, which I think has its positive and its negatives. The opposite end of all of this is if I join IATSE 479, which is the, the state of Georgia's local for electricians, grips, and a multitude of other department roles on, on a film set. And if I joined the union, I would have union dues to pay, but my health insurance would be taken care of. I'd be receiving a more social security. There'd be workshops, free workshops, albeit I have to pay dues for that, but workshops and the craft and knowledge of the folks you are sharing your day with are, based on my experience, are far outnumber like the folks who I, who I work with, say, more often on a non-union basis. That's not to say anything bad about non-union. I still get work. I do believe in like union work as well. But if I did join the union, I would have workshops to learn different technologies that are coming up and about in the film industry, especially within the electric department. I could learn how to drive a forklift. I've always wanted to do that. And I, I mean, I can go out and pay a class without being in the union, but I could you know, have those opportunities while simultaneously networking. I love freelance. I love being able to control my schedule to send down invoice and have that control over, well, if you want to hire me, this is what comes with it. And I've learned how to do that since 2020, 2021, where I've always considered myself like the younger person on set, whether I'm a technician or I'm a department head. And regardless of that, but it happens more often as a department head when I have to, you know, a producer reaches out to me, text, email, maybe even a phone call, Hi, I got your information from John Doe, and I want to know um, if you're available this day. That'll be the entire message. I, I could be available, but it depends on everything else about the job opportunity you have to share with me. Is it in the metro Atlanta area? Is it going to pay what the, the standard rates are for the industry in Atlanta? Are you just hiring labor or are you hiring gear plus labor? And, and all these things and how to negotiate for yourself are, it's tough because I think it's a fear of fear, especially because a lot of the folks communicating to you will be older, will be more experienced. And unfortunately, at times can act can and will act like they know more than you do, which so how do you navigate up. that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hone in on who your community is. Aside from the money I've made and the cool lights I own, the best thing that I could say as that has been a positive out of all this is the folks I've met along the way since 2020 who have, I won't say like, oh, they've taken me under their wing and been a mentor of mine. I mean, I have faux mentors, I think folks who are 20, 30 years older than me, and albeit they have more experience with how to run the business or they understand their business model better than I do, or their five-year projections better than I do. That being said, we work in the same similar boat where they're trying to hire their truck package, their lights, their grip equipment, and themselves on every job they can get on because that's just how they're going to make more money. You'll make more money on rentals per day, most likely, than you will on your own labor. So having your rentals there is, is almost more important. Well, equally important when you can combine them because it's it just makes it... I mean, I've been bummed out before when they only want to hire my, my labor. And I'm like, please hire my gear as well. Like, I won't have to worry about rent as much as I did, you know, the day prior. 
But honing in, the way to handle that, I think, is to hone in on your community, the other technicians or gaffers you know who maybe run a similar business where they have their inventory on a truck. The technicians who are your age who might be, you know, there's this imposter syndrome that I carry that I think a lot of people carry regardless of industry. But talk to the people that you think are above you, for instance, if that if that makes sense to anyone. Because most people like don't have they don't care that someone wants to talk to them in, in, in a positive way. And also like it's a little flattering to be the one to be asked sometimes because like I've been there and I still do it where I reach out to this person or that person about a question or a technique or whether it's onset or it's offset, we're we're talking by phone, or people have seen me and they reach out to me for certain assistance. And that is, I don't think flattery or flattering is the best response to that, but it's almost like it, it's just shows a level of growth. I think within me that I, I respond well to because it shows to me that I have not just been static for two to three years now. I've seen the projection. I've seen the movement. I've seen my Google sheets that shows my paid and unpaid work every year go up and the amount of jobs go up, but the amount of money I make goes up. And yes, like there, there's a, it's important to realize money can only take you so far, but there's also things you, if you want to expand the business, well, maybe you need to go buy a car or invest in a ramp or buy batteries or these ridiculous clamps or whatever, you know, that are somehow $60 for one and they're the size of your fist or something. And they just slap the word film on it and they can charge a premium. But I I, I got off topic a little bit. (laughs) No, no. And thank you so much that that's just shows so much self-awareness as Mm -hmm. well and self-confidence. Brennan, that you would willingly talk about feelings of imposter syndrome because it isn't just that it would be across industry. It's also across ages. Exactly. It's not yeah. just... That took me a little while to figure out. Yeah. Right? It's the yeah. 50-somethings and the 60-somethings mm-hmm. who also struggle with imposter syndrome. And I think especially for those who are pivoting into a new industry. So let's talk about what you do. Mm-hmm. As, let's say, a gaffer mm-hmm. or a grip on a different gig. I know that you were a grip as part of a crew working on a music video that came out in 2020 called Baptize. And this one was by Spillage Village. And I watched it. It was very cool. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's had 6.4 million views. As of the end of February 2023, which is when we're doing this interview, Mm -hmm. and you filmed, it looked like it was in a church Mm -hmm. and maybe also shooting outdoors. I don't know if it was a a river or a lake or something. Yeah, that was shot in China. That was a while ago now, I think about it. So that was between, we shot at a church. For the first half of the day, this was a single day shoot. I shot at a church for the first half of the day, and then we packed up and went to a park in South Atlanta that had a little, it, uh, maybe a quarter of a mile of a walk into the park from the lot. It was a little creek where we shot a scene. I wouldn't that job. Oh my god, like that. That's one of those jobs that like comes and it goes. I think it was the the opportunity to work with some artists who have done some really great work in the last couple of years, Earth Gang and yeah, Earth Gang. It was between Earth Gang, these two individuals and uh, 
JID or JID are a part of Spillage Village, this record label. And I've actually had the opportunity now to work with, with JID once or twice over now since that day, since that shoot day that we just spoke of. And I just gripped on that. It wasn't the biggest budget video, but it was a good group of folks who, you know, just know how to make it conceptualize a, a message and then put it on camera and then they know how to edit it into a two, three minute bit. And that's you, the, the first step, I think, conceptualizing the message and being able to, to communicate that to like 6.3 million people or whatever is that's the most important part. Obviously, you know, you don't get views if it sounds sound quality is bad or if the image quality is, is poor, then that'll have an effect, I suppose. But yeah, I, that job specifically, like I, when I think of memorable jobs, eh, that one doesn't rank up there, unfortunately. But oh, I've, okay. also, I've also learned that over time, it's, it's not about whether they rank like as memorable to me. Obviously, it's good if I leave set with a good feeling. But I also think this is important. No, especially when you're like boggled with finding work, not finding work, is you have to remember it is just work. I think there's some mystery behind it because it's in the entertainment industry. Um, and so like the idea of working with like potentially showing up to set, there's a famous person. That person is way more seasoned on set than you will ever be. Like they're just there. They this is this is how they make a living. So it's like that's I, you have to transition it into like so like captivated by like bright lights and big camera rigs and et cetera. And then a whole parking lot full of trucks that it's like, we're all just going to work and making a little scripted piece of three minutes. But people, unfortunately, I mean, people are abused and people die on set. People get hurt. There's a whole bunch. There's a lot of facade around, I don't know, there's like a, like a, like a cloud around like what is the entertainment industry in regards to like working as a technician laborer. Cause I, you know, people like when people want to hire me and stuff, sometimes, you know, they start calling it cinema, which is fine. Totally fine. Nothing against that. But when, when they start talking about like different themes and moods and stuff that sometimes it conveys, it gets conveyed to me. Other times it just sounds, they like to hear themselves speak. And I, but my, cause, because my perspective from all this is, okay, how many hours is this? How many hours is going to take per day? How many days of the shoot shooting is this? This is all labor. Film is labor. Film is art, but there is no art without labor and sweat and blood and all that, all that good stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. let's talk about some of that labor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and why don't you pick a project that you particularly enjoyed mm -hmm. and take us into what the work actually looks like as a grip mm -hmm. or as a gaffer? What Absolutely. been involved? Absolutely. So I'll go back to 2022 in July. This was the biggest job I had ever worked on. And it was uh, as a gaffer, as the department head of the electrical department. And it was given to me because, or the opportunity was given to me because of an unavailability from the person who was going to do that role. But they had something else come up. They didn't know the scale of the job when they were handing it off to me. They thought it would be this music video that they would have to schlep around and it just be more work than it needed to be. When in fact, this was a couple days project in a sound stage with two huge lighting rigs and what's called a techno crane. And it's a crane that carries a camera and it can telescope in and out and move freely from a, a, 
a single base like simultaneously. So the job, okay, so I worked on a job in July of 2022 for an artist. Her name is Lotto. She is 24 years old and she's a hip hop artist in Atlanta. And this was a job through Vivo and their films department. And it started with receiving communication from producers and the director of photography. Producers for the logistics stuff, payment, rental houses, who I wanted to hire as a key grip because that kind of falls under my role in some stages here and there. Sometimes a DP will come with their gaffer and they have to just find a key grip. But for this instance, I was able to hire a key grip. His name is Tim Chapin from California, moved to Atlanta a few years ago, and he's a local AD in 479. And he is absolutely killer. Without him and his department, this job would have been a train wreck. But it was three different music videos in one day for this artist named Lotto. Each video was a one take. So they would do 10 takes of each song. But at the end of the day, the client needed to know that they had at least one of those takes for each song to be good enough to go to to, to cut and go to YouTube with it. So this job was shot on a soundstage in South Atlanta called Arayu Brothers. We had a prep day, uh, excuse me, we had a scout day. And then the following week we had a prep day. And then the following day was the shoot day. And we also had to wrap out that night, which was a bit of a struggle, but made it all work. This was the biggest job I ever did. I was working with a budget of about $20,000 per day for lighting, which is more that I've, I've ever had the opportunity to work with. You're basically saying, I want... You don't even look at the prices. You just say, I want this light, that light, that light, that light, that light. I want that, 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 that. You just go down the list. And then of course, you might receive a little bit of pushback from your producers to cut, save some money. But that was pretty much the name of the game for this specific job. And so I was like, it was way above the limit that I thought I was at. When the impot... Like I talk about imposter syndrome, this job was like ringing every bell. I could physically feel the anxiety and the paranoia about screwing it up. I, every one of the technicians I hired in the electrical department were far more experienced than I was. So I had a Best Boy Electric. I had a board operator, a DMX technician who works with a board operator and they connect cabling and such to the lights wirelessly so that the board can communicate with the lights to perform certain cues, actions. And then we had another electrician on set with us. And then on the grip side, we had a key grip, a best boy grip, and then three or four grips. But this job, it required, there was two sets, three songs. So one of the sets had two songs. Each set had an 18 foot by 18 foot by six foot softbox that was chained on four on each corner of this box, was chained on each corner to the grid on the top of this stage. And they all operated on motors something I'd never worked with before. Ronan, <laughs> and, just, to, just to interject here, a softbox, mm -hmm. from my understanding, just having been in the broadcast television mm -hmm. industry is a light, right? A softbox. Um, so think about it in, in, at its final form, it is a light source. Not, it's not a brand. It's just think of it as a light source. I will definitely send you some emails with some behind the scenes pictures of this specific job and just the rig that, that the team built. Because it's just like you look up and it's just like, huge. And you're like, if this all, God forbid, but if like it all fell down on me, it would not be a pretty sight for anybody. So this is, it was, it's hung by chain motors so that you could articulate this box more frontal for beauty lighting or more toppy for like a dramatic shadow below your forehead and like under the eyes. 
And so it was, it just required a lot of communication between the cinematographer, Skylar Brown, and myself to understand what kind of lighting cues he wanted, what color temperature he wanted from the lights. It's also important as a gaffer to understand the camera side of things. Uh, the camera, you know, has its own sensor and it reads light differently than the light you're emitting from your, your lamps. What's the white balance inside the camera? Are we shooting digitally or are we shooting on film now? Which once you get into the film, we're like shooting on 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. You're, it's, you really got to know your stuff. I'm still learning my stuff, for instance, but I mean, I've done it a couple of times and I've had good results. This was being shot digitally and just knowing like the camera can see this, but it can't see that. The job just involved when it's funny because it's like I was talking to people before the job who weren't even who I didn't even hire as crew, but at this point were part of my community, had the experience, more experience than I did, and were gracious enough to take the time to sit with me and explain what I even needed to order. Things that's like if this isn't on your package, you won't be able to turn the light on. You won't be able to do you need this kind of cabling and this kind of distro box which are things I had a grasp of, but then, all right. I, and I do understand, but then you, it was just the scale of the job just looked so large in my eyes that when I thought about all these things, I wanted to just turtle. And I, I thought about passing the job off for oh a week my God. or so. Yes. Yeah. I thought, I, I mean, I was totally really see that. Yeah. And I talk about like the fight or flight, like part of me was really like, you know what? I am just going to give, this job to somebody else and maybe like, Hey, if you want you hire me as a technician on it, I'm so grateful that I did not do that. I would have felt like a, a fool had I let aside from the money I made on the job, the experience, because one of my, my buddies was telling me, it's like, you'll do this job. You'll walk out. You'll be able to do it a million more times because you know, what's needed now. And it's like, what is needed isn't even that special. It's nothing different than a lot of the other jobs I've been on. It's just at a grander scale, more lights in the box in a softbox than your typical, maybe like one or two sources inside. Normally you have a little more on the work order from the rental house than you're used to, you know, stuff that just really, I'm actually kind of became aware of like after the fact, I was like, you know what? I've done this a few times already. It's just been on a smaller scale. Now I've done it on a bigger scale, albeit it wasn't a music video. So it's, it's not, there's not as many, moving pieces, at least for this specific job, than say commercial with cues that are shifting from daylight to darkness in like the matter of a second. And it's stuff that I'm trying to learn now because I have this fear that I'll continue to do what I do, but the the technology of the industry will will move past me while others are learning it and I'm not. And personally, I don't want to be the interview corporate gaffer. I don't want to be gaffer that the corporate folks can just call and know I'll be able to set up because albeit it's easy, well-paid, taken care of food-wise and coffee in the morning, coffee after lunch. That's not the stuff where I look at it. I'm like, wow, that was really cool work. I actually learned something. No, I mean, those, those are just... There's a find out the jobs that pay the bills and then the jobs that you can say yes to that you don't necessarily need the pay. If it's a short film where you'll be able to experiment a little more with your crew members in regards to lighting or camera or movements and whatnot. What was the day like? I mean, what Mm -hmm. time? I know you said there were three days, but the day that you were actually shooting, Mm -hmm. what time did you start? And what time did you wrap? Yeah, (laughs) I think I worked a 16 or 17 hour day that day, which is pretty. That's a standard day on set is 
10 or 12, depending on what, what your jobs are, whether commercial or television or film. I think our call time that morning was 7 or 9 a.m. Felt like an odd number to me. I don't know why, but it, I want to say it was 7 a.m. And I'm driving to set and I'm just, I'm on pins and needles. One, because there was a little more work to be done in regards to the prep, the ground zero, which ideally you want to be, you want to walk in on the shoot day from your prep day, turn on the lights and call it. We're good. We can start. This is what we need. And then the camera will come up and there's minor tweaks, but that's it. However, you know, there was maybe one or two small tasks to be completed, uh, but still not to the standard that I want to be able to work at, especially considering that I was the least experienced of all of my crew members. I'm walking in and there's already a bit of, I felt tension with other crew members because of my experience, which they were making sure that I knew there that's their personality. And there's, and I understand that it would probably feel a little weird for someone to, I mean, I gave this opportunity to someone and hired them and got them paid, albeit eight to 10 years younger. Little weird feeling. I can imagine that. I understand that. Off track. Anyways, got in at 7 a.m. We had about two to three hours from that moment until artist is on set, ready to shoot. And that sounds like a lot of time, but and it is, but then you get on set and you you're talking to a million different people who are requesting a million things. And that three hours is gone in 10 minutes. And it's simple. Your 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 time gets consumed by camera department or wardrobe asking for an extension cord and you're like all your stuff is already strewn about because the previous day was just prep day getting everything out of the truck organized so i want to say 10 a.m talent on set ready to go the first set what was the name of the song it was called i remember it i gotta make sure it's safe for radio Oh, it's okay. This is a podcast. You can say whatever uh, it is. <laughs> so the final song we did was Sunshine. The second song was called Trust No Bitch. That was the at the other set. And then the first song, which was on the Sunshine set, but without the sunflowers on the set, was called Stepper. And it, this is the artist starts in one corner of the room. And the, the room itself is 20 by 20 by 12. The music will fade in. She's at the corner of the room. The camera is pushing in on her on this crane. And then the beat drops and she's moving. And the camera's being more or less, everyone's on headsets talking, is being choreographed by the operator of the crane, but is being, is in comms with our director of photography being like, okay, pull out, let's pan the camera, tilt the camera. Back up, back up, back up. Like it was happening so fast. And I, and I felt a little bad for, for the camera folks because they weren't there on the prep day because if they were, they would have been sitting around waiting for our set to be lit. And they were, it, putting the crane in the middle of the set that day, it would have been too much to work with and work around. So they had no, they had no prep. They were there on the shoot day and were, of course, had talked to the cinematographer about movements of the camera and such. But it wasn't until the artist is on set, in place, that they can really hit those marks, try to. I mean, there is a stand-in, but it was... I think our stand-in at the moment was like different members of the art department, which I'm sure they didn't appreciate. Takes them away from the work they need to be doing. And also, you want to be considerate. The people, the artists you're working with, their lives are important. And they have very busy schedules that need to be met, whether it's meetings or performances. 
or in-person signings or, or something like that. So once she's on set, she does not want to wait around. Her entourage does not want to does not want to wait around. And you have to respect that. And that's part of what makes us all very good at our jobs because it's like, it's go time. It's time to fix the problems. And if there are problems, well, figure it out, which is a tough pressure to be under. Did um, you have any lighting issues that you had to fix? That's a great question. No, it was all perfect. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we had one lamp different and it's so minute because you see the video and someone who's not, who doesn't know what the light behind that set is like, they're not going to be like, Oh, there's too much spill from that light onto this part of the wall. Like, most people don't think about that, but the people who are hiring you do think about it, which is why it's so important to be good at the troubleshooting side of your job. So at sometimes we'd have a light up lighting a piece of seamless that was behind an opening to emulate, say a window. And, you know, the light would just have a little too much spill. And, you know, there's certain piece of equipment you can use, put on directly onto the light or shape the light from a little further away. And those were used. So we had those tools at our disposal. And so we quickly, when we had a moment, made the change. And what is it like, Ronan, when you're on set with Lotto Mm -hmm. and, and she's doing her thing. She's moving around set. She's singing their takes and retakes and, and you're watching this process and know that you're a part of it. It's pretty, it's a cool feeling. There's a bit of a, it's cool to be in that moment, that specific day, if it wasn't the final song, because once we hit the final song, I was like, all my work here is done. Aside from everything that has to be packed up and make sure that the numbers are right. But when I was like in the moment and it wasn't the final song, it was what is needed for the next, the next take or the next song when we shift over because we're going to have, she's going to leave set, get into her wardrobe, the proper makeup that, and, and us technicians and whatnot, we'll have to, camera will come up so we can make tweaks on intensity levels. And this was not recommended, but I did not hear those three songs for the first time until the shoot day. So like, I didn't know the, I, the songs were unreleased as far as I was concerned. And so I'd never heard them. So communication between myself and the DP about specific lighting cues before the shoot, he said everything was going to be pretty chill, maybe like a dim up, a fade in and a fade out or like a pop here and a pop there with, with different lights. I was like, cool, we can handle that. And then we get to the shoot day and we're listening to the song. And it's like, he's marking specific lighting movements at specific parts of the song. So specific, there's a specific time code to that. So, and I never worked with a DMX uh, board operator until this job. And I'd be like, can we make this adjustment? He'd be like, yeah, go talk to playback, which is another person on set. You know, he's got a computer, he's wired in and stuff. And I never really had a real playback on set in regards to like this, uh, this type of playback. And I'd have to communicate with him to be like, at this point of the song, I need you to go to this point of the song. And then my board operator was linked to his time code. So he could see where that was. And then he could add the cue and then we'd play it. And then we watch what happened and it either would work or you'd have to tinker with it a little bit. So not hearing the songs, you know, prior to the shoot day was definitely a challenge that could have been avoided. 
if I'd communicated, I need to know the songs before we go into the shoot day. This is on my fault, my part that I blame. It's like, that's rookie stuff. Like I need to be way more communicative. I need it. And then the other, yeah, in terms of challenges, the DMX stuff and the cues uh, was the biggest hurdle. Because at, at times I would go to Jeremy Bradley, my board op and say, can we do this? And he'd be like, you need to go. It'd be the fifth time I asked him. And he's like, you need to go get time code. There's just all this communication that I wasn't even aware of that needed to happen. I thought because that my board operator and time code were already linked, that the board op can almost scrub through the song and pick the place and do the cue. So th- that was the biggest challenge. The song is at a certain BPM and there's certain bass hits, and it's like they want a pop of light at each bass hit, but they want it to go as the pops go on. So there's four of them. Each one they want to be. 20% less than the previous. So like 180, 60, 40, 20 until it's like nothing. But I would say that that was a very blessed... I was very blessed to have worked on that. I learned a lot. It sounds one. like it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So mm-hmm. just very quickly, what would you say is the best part of being a gaffer, being a grip? And what is the part that sucks the most? Sure. I'm not a fan. I'm not a huge fan of the 12 hour workday. I think there's a lot of time wasted on set. I'm not sure it actually saves much money to go from a 10 hour day to a 12 hour day. Then again, I don't know how to make a budget. So I don't know if that, if that, if that's fair of me to say that I don't like a 12 hour workday at that point. 12 hour workday is, is not quite my favorite. I think getting abused by the folks hiring you, it's just simple negotiations or Sometimes it hasn't happened to me directly, but no, you cannot speak to me like that on set. Like we're at work. This You couldn't do this in an office job and be okay. This isn't like CNN in the 80s or like I'll watch videos of my dad at CNN in the 90s and 2000s. And you cannot talk to people the way he spoke to folks nowadays. I, there's no way. Uh, <laughs> Are I've you seen saying like screaming and profanity? Yeah, like get to the you know fucking light and... Just do your fuck, you know, this, that, and the other. And yes, or just the profanity or just even just the speaking down to part. There could be, it could be as regular as a conversation. And then it's like, just they say something that they know is demeaning. Like it could be as simple as it was on the call sheet, which is, is like the piece of paper that has a lot of information on it, but they give us before we arrive to work. And it's like, yes, but you don't have to say it that way. Least favorite part. Okay. I'll say that. I'll try and get this in a clear sentence. My least favorite part of being a gaffer or a grip or any sort of technician in the electrical and grip department is, is getting maybe talked down to on set by your peers or your, the, you know, the people who are above you, whether it be your own, it could be your own boss. It could be producers. It could be the cinematographer who maybe thinks you're too young to be in this position or you made one mistake and you asked a question and now they're like, oh, this guy doesn't know anything. He's asking questions at this point. Because there's a lot of good talent in Atlanta in regards to technicians. I mean, there's way, there's so many people looking for work. So anytime anyone's like, I want to work in the industry, I'm like, you just got to be patient. It's a slow period right now. And there's an impending strike happening in the summer, potentially. So like, you just got to be able to know, you need to know the industry. The stuff is what the suits know. You need to be knowing what the suits know in order to be able to be a step ahead of what the technician, you know, blue collar folk per se don't know that'd be a weird way to put it what um, about the flip side what yeah. are what are the aspects that that you love yeah 
what, what I love about being a gaffer on set is the creation of an image. And that is kind of the most honed in part of what I love. I love film photography and I love portraiture. I love using natural light and observing what natural light is doing to a scene when it's, when I, when I take my dogs out for a walk or I go out and have, go to a restaurant, have a drink outside on a sunny day or even a rainy day, whatever it may be. Just watching how natural light it, it performs and how artificial light performs, whether it be a street lamp or a table lamp, because then you see how it performs and what it's doing to skin or reflecting. And it's doing a million different things. And it's like, how can I recreate that in a professional setting? So I can like tweak the level of intensity of that light, or how can I mimic daylight when it's dark outside, which there's just learning new techniques is so much fun, especially when you get it, when you get to understand it quickly, there's a million different YouTube videos on a million different techniques for how to put a camera on a car safely and, or how to put a light 80 feet in the air safely. What I've learned is that those experiences, you don't learn those things unless you have the experience, unless you get on set and you can see it happen in real time. Albeit, I am a visual learner. I consider myself a visual learner. So I have to see it, maybe even help them assist build this, this rig for me to, to know and then replicate it down the line when I'm on a job that might not have the biggest budget or I might be one of the most experienced folks on set and then I'm leading the team potentially to be like, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it slowly. So nothing breaks, no one gets hurt and we create an image. So my favorite thing about working on set is creating an image. And then it's the second thing is definitely working with other folks who enjoy the same thing. That community that comes with, with being on set is so, so strong because especially for the non-union folks, because you got to be able to, I think it's important to have that sisterhood, brotherhood, whether you're union or non-union, but kind of in the shit together, you know, every, you know, you could be on a, the worst project, but you're with good people. So would you rather have it any other way? I mean, of course you'd rather be on a better project, better pay, better health yeah. standards or what have you. <laughs> right. But there's also this weird acceptance because we work on set, we have to deal with it. Which yeah, I don't know why. Absolutely, ab there's absolutely a camaraderie. It's cool when it stretches beyond departments too. You know, when when art department and grip department are hanging out on the grip truck and just having a good time, and maybe they're not working, but they're just talking and they're talking about their last job or their next job or their current job. The camaraderie is what I really love. I love the creation of an image and being say like I helped like that because a camera responds to light without any light. There's no image. The same argument can be made for production design, props and wardrobe and, and what kind of camera, what kind of lenses you're using. All that has an influence. So, you know, it's like a big orchestra. At the end, it kind of just meshes in together to create one cohesive unit. Let me ask you this. I've got a, a handful of questions to go through, Ronan. Yeah, just absolutely. As, as kind of succinctly as possible, maybe. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned now a number of times, non-union, union. Why have you made the decision to be non-union at this point? Sure. Well, I can say that as of today, my union application is complete, but sitting in my room, <laughs> I just have to go to the office and drop it off between 9 to 3 p.m. Monday through Thursday. I've just not made the time to do that yet. The union, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I don't want to get wrong because. It, it is kind of 
not like it's legal or anything, but the union does certain things that I think are really good. While they also do things that I'm maybe not a huge fan of all because I'm not in the union, you know, like I, if I, if I, if I would do what's called day playing on as a non-union person on a union show, 3% of my net pay is reduced, you know, is taken out and the union gets that. So with that pay, I would want to be protected uh, in regards to health insurance, social security, job security. If I were to get hurt on the job, that I get some sort of workers' comp. And what the limits are of that, I'm not too sure of. So I don't want to say too much. But, and a lot of this information is readily available online. I'm non union still because I could have done this a while ago. I am still non union because I am still working gigs that. I like working and I'm still getting hired. So it's like the idea, it's like, you need to join the union. You need to get some work. The union's going to do that for you. It's like, okay, great. Well, I've been doing this for two and a half years now, non-union. And I found a pretty good niche of non-union clients and non-union technicians who have been doing the same thing and are all pretty, pretty good. And they would all get accepted on a moment's notice if they filed the application and paid the fee, which is kind of the most important part. It's what the union wants you to do. And you know, I'm still getting it? work. It depends on what local you're joining. So local 479, there is an application fee. I want to say it's 100 bucks or 80. I want to say it's 100 though. There's an application fee and there is the uh, like an, an, an initiation fee. And as far as I knew, it was $1,800 one-time payment. It may have gone up to $2,200. Sounds like a lot, but if you're doing a union job, like you're making that money back, you're paying that full amount back in one to four weeks, depending on how frequently you're working. But if you're working full time, you're paying that back in like a week or two tops on union work. So that's not too bad. Now there's like local 600, which is for camera folk, DPs, first assistant, assist, first ACs, second ACs, utilities, DITs. I think are 600 and that's a, that's a nationwide local. And maybe it's because of the uh, culture of what a camera is to film and how important a camera is. The prices to join that are, are insane. I mean, I think it's, I, I could be wrong. I could look it up, but I, my gut is saying it's like 10 plus thousand dollars for that one time fee. If you wanted to join as a cinematographer, Obviously doing so, like you need to be able to have, you need to be be able to stick up with the recommendations that are given because you have to have recommendations for all your applications and a sponsor more or less for your applications. And so you just have to be able to prove that you're going to prioritize your union brothers and sisters when you're going to get hired. It's one of the vows you take when you sign the application, which I mean, I'm I'm in agreement with that. I, I believe in that. I'm still non-union because I am still working and I don't need to yet. And I am not a huge fan of the 12 plus hour days, five days a week, six plus weeks. My body can't handle that. Like I know it can't handle that. I did it for March to May on a non-union show and I worked for 30 days straight that, that last year at one point. In March, Mar- it was March, mid-March to mid-April. I worked for 30 days straight plus maybe 32 days. Never had it. I didn't have a day off. It was the worst feeling of my body. Like my body felt 
just, it just, it wasn't responding to, I wasn't feeling anything in like the worst way. I mean, I was making money, but I'd come home from a 14 hour day, wake up the next day, get maybe seven hours of sleep, do it the same thing Monday through Friday. Maybe I'd hop on a project for the weekend because I was an idiot and wanted to help out some friends. And then that went on for four plus weeks. The entire show though was nine weeks, roughly nine weeks. And it was Monday to Friday. And you know, it's that 12 hour day. And uh, that was just a lot of work. There's a whole robotic feeling about that, that I'm just, I'm just not sure that I vibe with, albeit like if I want to gaff a big TV show one day or a big movie one day, that's going to be the job. And so uh, what I want now isn't what I'm going to be at later. And it's not that I could work another show. I'm not against working shows. It's just that I've become accustomed to what the corporate and commercial world have to offer. Three-day shoot, great rates, great craft services, tables, all the snacks that you could ever want. I just, I mean, I love that feeling of like, you're still making something cool. So there's really nothing wrong with it. And like those non-union jobs, if I'm department heading them as a gaffer, most of the time I'm providing a rental for it. So must I'm learning on the, the labor side, new techniques, how to light, while also making more money for the business as a sales manager, roughly, or technically as a general manager. I don't have any, any employees. I'm the sole owner of this company. So cool. Yeah. Let me, let yeah. me ask you, this may be... I, I actually don't think it's an irrelevant question. So my question is, has it helped you, Ronan? to have gotten a college degree in this general area? Like, is anything that you studied at Georgia State or is enough of what you studied in your classes yeah. at Georgia State helping you yeah, so in really, what you're doing now? Or did it help you when you first were working while you were in college? Or would it have been better? for you to go straight into the industry right out of high school? That's a great question. I try not to, I don't lament on that, but I guess I'll go backwards. I think had I left high school and just went into the industry, I wouldn't have joined as a grip. I would have probably joined working TV shows as a production assistant. And then, you know, one way, can you talk to the next person or the other? I probably would have tried to move into other, other departments. However, the diploma I have, I, in those four years, a lot happened. I met a lot of folks my age with whom I developed a working, working professional relationship with and, you know, making short films or handing gigs off. If I couldn't take it, I'd give it to this person or if this person couldn't take it, they'd give it to me kind of thing. People I met along the way, great. Georgia State University did not offer me the technical abilities to do things on set that I have learned along the way. What I do today, I consider myself self-taught how to set up a C-stand, the proper way to put a sandbag on a C-stand, like simple stuff, how to wrap cable how to unwrap cable, how to send an invoice, how to follow up on an invoice when it's not getting paid on time, what putting a light closer to a subject is going to do versus putting it further away from a subject. 
different, you know, how to shape light, how to reflect light, how to bounce light, how to cut light, how to balance a generator, how to read a generator, how to set up certain grip stands that are the size of a bed. Georgia State did not offer those types of courses. They offered a lot of theoretical courses, which I loved. I love film theory. I do. I mean, I was the homework I would have would be read this article, watch this movie, respond to the article and the movie, you know, in, in a little three to 12 paragraphs, whatever you want. I was like, oh, great. Like, that's nothing. And then the, the courses, then they would, they would offer production courses. And then there's a bunch of bureaucracy that's involved that I, I'm not a fan of that to be a film major, you have to graduate with a production one credit, which is the first class in the non-theory classes of film at Georgia State. So, you know, as, as soon as you're a freshman, you're like, I want to take this class so I can go on one check off that I've done it. And then that's a prerequisite for all the other technical classes that they offer digital cinematography, editing, documentary filmmaking, the list goes on every time up until my, up until the first semester senior year, I wasn't able to take those courses because somehow they would just, they would fill up and you know, once it filled up, I just had to find another class to take. And then, you know, when it came to that senior year, I was like, I have to take this class. Like, I don't, at this point, I, ha I might even have to get a class at Tuesday at 7 p.m. No one wants that class or even worse, a Friday class. And once I got into the class, there wasn't a lot at that point. There wasn't a lot in there that I didn't already know because of set work and set experience. You know, obviously at that point, I, but the thing is, even at that point, and that's why I think it's like the whole, I consider myself, I was full-time, part-time freelance while in school. COVID made that a completely different thing than it could have been. At that point, you know, in university, I was like, I don't want to be an editor. I don't want to be a boom operator. I want to be a gaffer. I want to be a grip. I mean, I don't want to be a grip. It's kind of like a, a label. It's a laborious position to be in because you're kind of just lugging stuff around and tightening things. It's, it's a lot of work. Whereas like, I still feel a bit of creative control as a gaffer because it's talking about color, light, shape, everything. But I already knew what I wanted to do in that aspect. Because Once of all I, the freelance work you had done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And there are a few names along the way who really helped me get to that point just by hiring me, giving me the confidence on set. A lot of documentary DP documentary DPs gave me that step that I needed. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I will say one quick shout out to the Georgia Film Academy. They did offer courses to University School System of Georgia, which Georgia State did work and practice with. I did do two sem semesters at the GFA, one at what's now Trillith Studios in Fayetteville, and one at OFS Studios in Norcross, Georgia. And th those were beneficial, albeit not taught by Georgia State professors. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Three yeah. final questions that mm -hmm. I try to ask all T4C guests. Mm -hmm. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten, Ronan? Oh, gosh. I should have thought about that. The best career advice? I, uh, I'm afraid I don't have anything verbatim. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have like just the general gist of it? Yeah, I think... If you don't, Best we can just advice. skip over. No, I, I got one. I got one. And it wasn't even, I can think of things that like were said while I was a kid that like trans still translate to this. And I, I think one is trusting your gut. 
and uh, your intuition on certain certain things. Technical decisions or aesthetic decisions. It's trust your gut and follow through when you say you want to do something on set, whether it be a, a creative project you want to do in the future or a certain setup you want to make. Or if you've made promises, follow through with what you've said to people because people do notice that. I, I notice that. Or the small things. Do the actually no, the best advice I got. Do the small things perfectly. Or something. It was something like that. Like do the small things the right way, perfect way. When you're wrapping cable over electrical extension cords, stingers, technique is over over. It should look like a symmetrical donut. And you've tied it with its rope from on one end and on the other end so that it's not jangling around, hitting you in the face when you go to toss it up on the truck or something. Do the simple things the right way. People do notice now that I own my own gear and I hire people to use my gear, I, I pay attention to if they're taking care of it, making sure that they're not dropping it, kicking it, dragging things, making sure that the simple things are done properly and being a good communicator. Love it. What about if you could share a time so far in your professional life, this includes your time freelancing while you were a student, when you struggled, maybe even failed Mm -hmm. or fell on your face, not literally, not literally, but Mm -hmm. the most important thing here, Ronan, is how you persevered Mm -hmm. and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Okay. The thing that's sticking out most with me is April 2020. The whole industry is pretty much shut down that I wasn't already and I I wasn't getting a lot of work. And so I was like, I don't know if this is a career choice. This is like a, this is a thing I can do, but I'm going to have to supplement the money with, you know, I'm going to have to supplement with something else, whether it be in a restaurant or uh, as a barista, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going, I'm not going to be able to make this passion a career. And then, and it was due to the lack of work. It was due to COVID-19. Nobody's working. Everyone's afraid of getting sick, et cetera. And just time, you know, I think just that time away from any sort of environment, even school, you're like, not you felt like you weren't progressing. You could be, you know, watching YouTube videos and learning, but it's like in practice, it's, you're not getting hired. What difference does it make? What changed? Time went on. People, productions knew how to combat COVID-19 and vaccinations all about, but COVID testing, masking up, getting people back to work was super important. And then I worked August, 2020, I worked on divorce court as a production assistant for two weeks, uh, doing manual labor, driving a box truck from their storage unit, picking up furniture to then drop in the green room for the talent members, doing that five times a day from airport to midtown, airport to midtown. And through that, I met a DP who got my contact and he hired me, hired me, hired me on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it would be the gaff, the little, little documentaries or little interviews for corporate clients. So like, and I was, so I was making money. And that was like the first time I was making money off of like invoice, not just not as a W4, no 99. I mean, this is pre-tax, but it was like a different form of revenue than I was originally used to. And so I just got work and the work kept coming. And then I realized that if I owned equipment, that maybe I could get that hired out too. And so I bought one light, 
it got hired out, I've probably paid off the light a few times already. Now that I think about it, like I, I don't think I have the spreadsheet to, to add it all up, but I've probably paid off that light plenty at this point. And so it was just investing in myself is what helped, whether it be by, you know, doing those YouTube videos that maybe or may not had an immediate effect and getting more confidence, knowing how to communicate on set with the folks who hired me, like what kind of light they want. And just having a general more confidence. I mean, the more confidence really kicks it. Yeah, having more confidence on set just really kicks in because it's like one of those things that you don't even know that you're like, I hate to say the word suffer, but you don't even know you're suffering from. It also but, sounds to me though, Ronan, that it was a case of you not throwing in the towel. Yeah, I guess in a in a in not a giving speaking, up. Yeah, because I I suppose the la- the the opposite if I had when I thought as hard as it was, I was like, I don't know if this is going to be a career choice. I think I still had a little bit of time before the final big decision of Mac, an ultimate decision needed to be made. But no, I didn't give up. I didn't throw in the towel. I didn't change majors and go back to school. Because I did know while I was in school, I'm like, okay, if I want to work on set, I knew I didn't need a degree. But there's all these other things that can happen while you're in school, people you can meet, seminars you can attend that are could be important at the end of the day when you actually think about it. But no, I did not give up. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I, and this might be a little morbid, but I don't know what other job I'm qualified for, if not for one on set. I can't work in an office. I don't think I have, I I don't know any softwares that would allow me to do such. The setting of an office is not where I want to be. I like having my office or my work location be somewhere different. Every time, oh, I'm in downtown, I'm in Midtown, I'm in rural South Georgia. Oh, I get to cross the state line for work. That's kind of cool. Like, I hope they're paying a per diem so I can eat on the, on the road. But like, that's another conversation. So alternatively, there's just so many other things that could have been done, but I, I don't have a passion for that. And I'm really lucky to say that like, I am passionate about 99% of the work that I do on a day-to-day basis. Or even like when I look back at a year and all the gigs I did, even if they weren't fun, it's like, well, it beats sitting in an office for me. A hundred percent. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. So final question. If you could go back to Georgia State and do it all over again, Mm -hmm. but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? I would have not been a film major. I would have been like a film minor. And I don't, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, really, who knows if it would have made it entirely too big of a difference. I wish I academically at Georgia State, I would have been a business major or fine. I would have tried to have learned some sort of business or finance or something that could, you know, you do have a, gr- a ground level for maybe an entry level job at a firm or something. But knowing I'm a business owner now who isn't the greatest bookkeeper, doesn't spend my money every time the best way it probably needs to be. I don't invest everything I own, a third or two thirds of everything I own. If I had, if I could go back, I probably would have taken more business structured courses and then let the film stuff be a minor instead of taking four out of my five classes, a day, you know, a semester are film based albeit it made school kind of easy because you just got to prove a point in a big paper. And then sure, you might get an 80 or 
you might get a, an 85 or even a 70 or 75. But once I hit senior year, once I hit senior year and I knew I couldn't lose a scholarship that I was already on, I was like, cool. And work <laughs> and work was coming in. I was like, cool. I don't need to stress this as much because the thing I'm moving on to, I'm already at. I was already doing jobs that folks who are out of school and, and whatnot struck maybe were struggling getting. And I don't want to me I don't want to say that in a ego way. I mean, obviously the ego is it's hard to not say that. It's hard to say that without any form of ego showing. I say that in the sense of like I'm proud of myself. I did not let the imposter syndrome take over and cloud the sun. And I kept improving and trying to learn whether it was by taking pictures or working on sets for no money that were with friends or working on the big sets and learn how to communicate with different cinematographers who I look at their work and I'm like, wow, your work is incredible. And you're, you're eight plus years older than me or you're 20 years older than me. What do you have to share with me? Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is probably one of the more important questions that I'm going to ask you. Sure. Are you able to pay all your bills right now? I, yes. And I don't mind getting into, I was actually prepared to like talk specifics. I mean, not prepared, but like, I, I'm okay with talking about specifics on a day to day, month and week to week, month and month basis basis. I don't live paycheck to paycheck. I am so blessed. I mean, I'm very privileged. My, I, my parents own the same home we grew up in and that's where I'm doing this meeting from. Uh, you know, so I've had a great foundation, albeit there's nothing that they, nothing I, I have that they pay for anymore. I am completely on my own, my own phone bill, healthcare. I wish I wasn't on my own healthcare, but it's a different price. I'm on my own, you know, phone bill, healthcare, rent, utilities, Wi-Fi, car payments, which I didn't, one thing, didn't have to pay a car loan. Just bought it out with a check. I never took loans to get into school. I mean, I took easier, easy-ish classes in high school. I got the good, a good scholarship. I went to a state school that... So that the scholarship was 80% of tuition every year. I'm trying to think like what it costs me to run my business every month. I mean, projected spending is sometimes I have a credit card bill that's $8,000 for my business. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not good. I need to not have that. But that's a month where I bought a couple things that were like, that's where I made a big, big purchase. That's a big purchase month. But my general monthly credit card bill for my business is probably around two to three grand every month. And I pay all of it on time. I, a lot of the money that I made last year sat, it's, it's invested, it's in a checking account, a lot of it. So, and I don't spend, I just don't spend it. You know, that's an account where money goes into and I spend only with credit. I only spend with credit now because I don't know why I would spend. I mean, it's not, I've learned it's like not insured when you spend outside of credit. And so God forbid anything happens and you know, so your card is frauded and, or something, then you're going to get your money back and the, the bank will take care of you. I could live off that checking account for months and months. Like if I wanted to take three, six, nine, 12 months off of work and do whatever I want to do, I probably could. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously you'd have to be like, well, you can't spend X amount per day for this many days or else you're going to hit that limit. I love this. I love this, Ronan. What I hope we can leave our listeners with mm -hmm. is the fact that it is possible mm -hmm. 
it really is possible build a business while you're in school even Mm -hmm. if it wasn't technically an llc then Mm -hmm. you were building your book of business while you were in school and not even two years out right 100% independent ronan i want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I so enjoyed our conversation and I can totally understand why your dad is so unbelievably proud of you. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. I really appreciate you, um, you know, opening up this opportunity for, for me to speak to you, uh, your listeners, for even me to like hear me talk about it. Cause it's like, I don't do that a lot. Um, so this was a great opportunity and I, it makes me feel really proud of myself and it makes me especially proud to know that like one of your listeners could even hear this and inspire them to, to do their own thing and to make that happen or even to reach out with me with more questions as a follow-up. So, so that alone makes me extremely proud and happy to have, to have joined you today. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.